Hey guys, I'm Sarah, and welcome back to our Cult of Curiosities podcast. Chris is in the actual podcast, but unfortunately, I am extremely impatient, and I had time to edit our recording and put it all together to upload it, and I did not want to wait for him to get home from work so that he could record the intro with me, so I'm doing it myself. Um, Today, we're talking about a Boston theme if you haven't already caught on we pretty much just said pick something that has to do with Boston and go from there if it interests you and the reason that we picked a Boston theme is because not this past weekend now but the weekend before we were in Boston for the Suicide Boys concert and it was so much fun and I can already hear my mom rolling her eyes at the fact that we were at the Suicide Boys concert but it was fun Terry I know you don't approve of the music, but it was fun and we had a good time. So we decided to bring a little bit of the magic home with us and do a Boston-themed episode today, and we hope that you enjoy it. Alright, here we go. So, I already told you that I chose to do The Giggler, Mm. but his real name is Kenneth Franson. Franson. Francis Harrison. Okay. Um, he was born on September 4th in 1938 in the Mission Hill neighborhood of Boston, which, for reference, because I have no idea mm. where that is, um, it's near Jamaica Plain in Brooklyn, where we oh, went to yeah. the Lars Anderson Auto Museum. Yeah, so we were right in that area. Yeah, we were. So... We could have been where it happened. I'm just kidding. He was born there. so But, I mean, there's other places in here that we maybe could have been. Yeah? Yeah, I don't know. Just have to wait and find out. Yeah? Yeah? Are you on the edge of your seat? I, yeah, already. <laughs> so, he was born to his parents, Earl and Veronica Harrison, and he had one sibling, but couldn't find the name or age or anything of the sibling because... So Nothing. he didn't exist. No, he did, I guess, but there's, because it was mentioned, but it says everywhere that nobody really knew anything about his personal life. Oh. Like, or, I mean, maybe not, like, his personal life, but more so his personal life prior to when he became infamous, I guess. Yeah. So... Is that too close for comfort? It was a little too close to the laptop. I had a feeling you were going to move the candle at one point or another. Mm. I should have just done it first, but I thought it was fine. My bad. It's all right. My bad. My bad. I know better for next time. I was just trying to set the mood with the candle and, you know, like the ambient lighting. Well, we'd have to shut that light off and then it would actually be ambient. Well, then it would be so dark I wouldn't even be able to. Oh. All right. We're going on a rant about candles and lighting and... <laughs> All right, well, I'm we barely, we barely even started. All right, anyways, we're literally two minutes in and we're already getting, <laughs> getting off track. Um, so, really, the only thing that that there is to know about his life up until about thirty years after he was born is that he only completed school up until eighth grade. So he's genius. Prob- I was gonna say probably a genius. And then he became an unemployed cook, and he was... <coughs> you good? Sorry. I'm just asking if you're okay, because I love you. I thought you said, are you done? No, I said, are you good? I was like, sorry, I'm just coughing. <laughs> no, I said, are you good? I am good, thank you. Um, He was an unemployed itinerant cook, which means that he would like just take jobs anywhere that they popped up. Mm-hmm. And he spent his time uh, living in various rooming houses around the South End, which we did not go no, to when we, we were in Boston. And sometimes he even ended up living inside the cell station because he had nowhere else to go. Imagine living down there, how hot it was. No. And disgusting. Yeah. So, anyways, fast forward to April 15th, 1967. A six-year-old girl, her name was Lucy Palmerin, uh, who was originally from Puerto Rico, which kind of becomes important in a second. Um, her parents sent her to 
turn and and I tried to find more about this because I really didn't understand what it meant. But they sent her to take an empty tonic bottle, which I'm assuming was like a glass bottle or maybe even a plastic bottle of some Probably sort. glass. And brought it to a public housing project in Boston. I don't know if she was donating it so they could like take it for money. I, I don't really know. It didn't really elaborate whatsoever. Couldn't find anything about it. Um, but that's what she went to go do. And then she never came home. So her parents reported her missing to the authorities who started searching for her. And at first they couldn't find her anywhere. No trace of her. And they ended up talking to one of the little girl's friends who ended up giving them a piece of information that she had last seen the little girl Lucy climbing into a black sedan driven by an unfamiliar man. And this is where the Puerto Rican thing becomes important because her family was concerned to hear that because um, the little girl Lucy did not speak English because she was from Puerto Rico. And I'm assuming newly moved to America yeah, if she probably. can't really speak English because she's only six. Um, and, well, and then the other thing that alarmed them is that she's not really acquainted with anyone in the area, so they must be new. Yeah. And um, over a month after Lucy went missing is when they finally start to find stuff. On May 24th, two teenagers were walking towards Broadway Station and noticed something strange among the garbage discarded um, into the Fort Point Channel. Upon closer inspection, they realized that it was the body of a little girl, which ended up being the six-year-old Lucy. That's awful. Yeah. And originally, they listed her death as a drowning and also said that it was accidental. Interesting. It is interesting because I feel like the bit about the black sedan with an unfamiliar man would have been enough for me to be like, maybe she didn't drown, but apparently not for them. They were like, no, I guess she just fell in, guys. Yeah, she did. Oops. They didn't want to, they didn't connect the dots. Oops, she forgot her floaties and she fell in. Yeah. What a tragedy. So, anyways, um... They brought her body to a local mortuary where it was identified as Lucy by one of her brothers, which is awful. Mm -hmm. Um, And then about three years later, on June 16th, is when the next chain of events happens. That they start to put the pieces together a little bit. And that is when 31-year-old Joseph Breen, a Marine Corps veteran who worked at the water department in Brookline, who went to the novelty bar in the combat zone to drink with some friends. After drinking with them for some time, he decided to play shuffleboard with another customer who ended up being Kenneth Francis Harrison. Lucky him. That genius of a guy. Yep. Yeah. The eighth grade education. (laughs) Eighth grade graduate. They played until the bar closed and they ended up leaving the bar together for some reason. A while later, they got into a physical brawl over the cost of a bottle of alcohol and the cab fare of the cab that they took, which led to our friend Harrison pushing Joe Breen into a water filled pit. And then beat him on the head with rocks. Interesting. Which is obviously an appropriate reaction. Yeah. To that situation. It's just your first initiated reaction is to just bash people in the face with rocks. The first thing he did after this was he went to the nearest payphone and called the police. And I have a recording of the 911 phone call. And this is the... This is like an infamous phone call when people talk about him, and it's what led to him being called the Giggler. And he basically deemed himself the Giggler, which you'll hear, but let me turn up my volume. That's my brightness, so that's not going to do anything. Okay.
So, I know that's kind of, like, hard to understand, but he basically tells them the intersecting streets that he'll be on. I forget the first one, because I saw the transcription of it, and I thought I would just remember when I heard it the second time, but I guess not. But the second one is Washington Street, and it's one street in Washington Street. He says, at blah, 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 on Washington Street, you'll find a man dead in the water. And then he says, the giggler. And then starts laughing. Yeah. So after they get that phone call, uh, because he immediately hangs up after he says this, which is why there's no nothing after that. There's no like. There, the nine one one operator didn't even get the chance to respond to him. Um, Breen's body was found on the following day at the described location. This death was ruled a homicide and after interviewing the two friends who had accompanied him to the bar initially uh, police were provided with a description of the man that they had seen with Breen at the bar who was a pudgy man in his early 30s average height wearing old clothes um after a while one of the two friends that had initially been with Breen went back to the novelty bar and saw Harrison there again and ended up immediately reporting him to the police. However, by the time the police got there, Harrison was gone, of course. And um, the guy only saw him. He didn't get a name or anything. He just happened to see yeah. him. So And like have a conversation with him. Yeah, so all he did was lay eyes upon him, so that didn't lead them anywhere. Um, so, again, he gets off scot-free. First was the accidental drowning. Second is people got him, but they don't know anything about him. Yeah. On November 27th of 1969, the body of 75-year-old Clovis Parker, an elderly woman who lived in the South End, was also found floating in the Four Point Channel, as was this first little girl, Lucy. She was identified via her identity papers, which were still on her body. And despite Lucy and Clovis's death being so similar, Clovis's death was also ruled as an accidental drowning. So, I mean, I know you can drown in like an inch of water or whatever that saying is, but Jesus. Like, we're, like, this is, we're not on a good track record already. Two, two misses, and one, they almost got him, but they can't really get anything yeah. on him. Oh, you almost got him. You gotta be quicker than that. Yeah, you gotta be quicker than that. And also, at this point, if we're just gonna go ahead and assume that Lucy, Joseph, and Clovis <coughs> are all victims of <coughs> Kenneth Francis Harrison, the giggler. He has no M.O. He's all over the place. Yeah. Six-year-old Puerto Rican girl, 31-year-old Marine Corps vet, 75-year-old elderly woman. Yeah. Like He's all over the place. He's all over the place. Whatever just happens to be in his way at that time. Yeah, I guess so. About a month later, on December 26th, nine-year-old Kenneth Kenny Martin left his home in Dorchester and went in the direction of South Station, where he planned to catch a train, and tried. the end goal was to go to his friend's house. Uh, however, that did not happen. When he got to the platform, he was almost immediately approached by Harrison, who convinced him to play around with him instead, and then accompany him to his living space inside the train station. Oh, nice. Yeah. He's like, come check out my digs, <laughs> my, my, my dirty sleeping bag in this stuffy-ass, dirty MTV little tunnel. my cribs. <laughs> so, this he, is the movie theater. <laughs> he, he takes him to his little home in the tea station, and upon entering a tunnel under South Station, he immediately strangled this nine-year-old boy, Kenny, with a piece of twine, and then covered the body with a canvas, sorry to flip my page, which he left in the tunnel. Martin's body was found 10 days later by a detective searching through the station and was positively identified by a friend of his. That's sad. That is sad. He's an, another nine-year-old little boy. That's so sad. 
had to be like, yep, that's my friend. However, we finally got him. Yeah, we finally do? got him. What did he do? Spit at the crime scene and then left his DNA everywhere? Well, Harrison thinks he thinks he knows everything, but multiple witnesses had seen him. Thinks he knows him. everything? He didn't, gra- he didn't, he didn't even, like... I know, but that's that's the point. That's the point because he has an eighth grade education and he thinks he can get away with murder. (laughs) And he can't. So my first thought of him bringing in of him bringing this little kid into the train station to to ultimately murder him, is when we were in the train station and any time I've been in the train station in my entire life in Boston, Mm -hmm. just casually opening the fridge to get it. When you getting an applesauce? Oh. Okay. Yeah. Not the Jack Daniels. Yeah. Not the honey Jack Daniels. Go easy there, killer. I am going easy. There's not even that much. It doesn't take much to make you even groan. (laughs) Even groan. All right, just continue. (laughs) Anyways, my point was was that. There's always mad people milling around the tea. Hmm. Like, everybody's trying to get on the tea. There's always people in the station. Especially, it's not like this kid's going on the tea at, like, midnight. Like, he's nine years well, old. What year is this? This is still 1969. Oh, okay. It's just December 20th, day after Christmas, 1969. So maybe he could have been out that late. I don't know. It was 1969, wild time. My mom can attest to that. Right, T? <laughs> Just kidding. She was she was literally one years old. <laughs> Wild time, right, T? <laughs> My dad was like four, <laughs> five. Okay, anyways. Um, so my first thought was nobody saw him bring this little boy down to the train station and kill him. Nope. Well, they did. Is the thing. Multiple mm-hmm. witnesses had seen him accompanying the little boy on the day of his disappearance, which eventually people told the authorities. A warrant was issued for his arrest, and after receiving an anonymous tip, the police officers were able to finally trace Harrison back to the Biltmore Hotel in Providence, Rhode Island, living the life of luxury. Yeah. Providence R.I. America's armpit. Pretty much. You're going to offend people from... I don't care. should. Rhode Island is the shittiest state in the entire United States. That's Except for maybe like Delaware. But you know what, Jake? Connecticut's right behind it. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> don't get any big ideas. Call him out by his government name. Jake. Jacob. He doesn't listen to our podcast. Yeah, no. Hannah doesn't either. She probably pretends that she does, but she doesn't. <laughs> My mom does, though. My mom and all her homies. Love you, T. Love you, T. Love you, T and family. Okay, anyways. Uh, um, they were able to arrest him because they finally found him in this hotel. He offered no resistance and waived extradition to Boston where he was soon charged with Martin's murder the little boy a few days later he was arraigned on additional murder charges for the deaths of Palmerin Parker and Breen damn so they got him on all of them they got him on all of them during the trial for Kenneth Martin's murder it was revealed that the phone tip that led to his arrest was made by his sister Eileen Longo she testified, which is very brave of her, that Harrison had called on two occasions prior to his arrest and confessed to killing her little brother and had even told her where he had hidden his body. After consulting with a lawyer, she decided to call the police and tell them what had happened. Um, and the attorney, Harrison's attorney, argued that his client did admit to playing around with the boy, which is disgusting. However, he did not explicitly state being responsible for the murder. Okay, oh well, he God. was murdered five seconds after he was playing around with him. Yeah. So, 
Like, it's just common sense, buddy. Timeline. And he said, even if Harrison was guilty, it wasn't on purpose because he had either been drunk or was blackout. So he wasn't responsible for his actions. Yeah. What about the other four times? Or three? Sorry. All excused. Um... Harrison then said himself that there was not enough evidence to convict him. But if he was found guilty, that he should be given the death penalty. Yeah, you should. You're a piece of shit. <laughs> you killed a six-year-old, a nine-year-old, a fucking elderly woman, and a Marine Corvette. Like. <laughs> this guy did not care. Yeah, so ultimately after he says this, you know, like he's trying to be all like, like a martyr, he ends up like basically like begging, saying that someone else had done it with him. It wasn't just him. You have to believe me. And he couldn't say who that had been. So he was found no, guilty. That's not going to get you anywhere. Yeah, I know. I know. Someone else was with me, but I... I can't tell you who it is. Someone else was with me. Who was it? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Get back to me in a couple of days, yeah. and I will yeah. have an answer. For but can you. I go? Because it wasn't. I didn't act alone. I got it, and I promise I'll come back. <laughs> I promise I'll come back. But I just need a couple of days. And to not go. murder anymore, little boys. <laughs> I promise I'll come back, and I promise I won't murder anyone this time. <laughs> like, anyways, he was found guilty for Martin's murder. And sentenced to life in prison. He was then transferred to the Massachusetts Correctional Institute of Walpole, where he awaited trial for the other three murders. In June of 1972, he pleaded guilty to the remaining murders. Um, And then he actually revealed how he had carried them out in detail. His attorney ended up requesting at the same trial that he admitted all of this stuff that he be allowed to serve his sentences at the Bridgewater State Hospital, but it was denied by the judge because he said that that was basically out of his hands. It wasn't his choice to make. So he only spent six days at the Correctional Institute in Walpole, and then he was actually transferred to the Bridgewater State Hospital. Um where he was getting treatment because I guess he was like mentally ill Mm. and he remained there for more than a decade. Um, now we're fast forwarding to early 1989 where he was told that he was going to be transferred from Bridgewater state hospital to the Massachusetts correctional Institute in Concord, Massachusetts after which Harrison supposedly spiraled into a depression because he didn't want to leave Bridgewater State Hospital. (laughs) And what's kind of funny, this part's, like, not... It's not, like, funny, but it's, like, funny. Because, like, it was was noted. What did you just knock over? Uh, My, um, water bottle. Oh, phew. Thought it was something important. No. It was noted by several staff members that were there with, like, working with him at the time that he spiraled into this depression. And... (laughs) they still, like, basically left him, like, most of the time completely unmonitored. On April 20th, 1989, Harrison was found slumped on the floor of his room by staff members and was quickly transported to St. Luke's Hospital in Middleborough, which I can attest no longer exists and has not for a very long time. But I've seen it abandoned. Yeah, so if I drive him through. Yeah. Don't try to get in, because there's lots of asbestos and security, but it's there. It sounds like uh, the Wizard of Oz in there, and I want to go in. (laughs) You just want (laughs) to lay in the snow of asbestos. Yeah, I do. Okay. Have fun with that. (laughs) Have fun with that. You're on your own on that one. I'm not coming to that date night. (laughs) Wizard of Oz recreated. Yeah, <laughs> you gonna play all the characters by yourself? Yeah, <laughs> and I'm gonna ed- edit them all on screen all at the same time, and it's all gonna work perfectly. Are you gonna do the before or after you die from asbestos? Hopefully before, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. 
you know? <laughs> the way you phrase that question, I don't know. The main goal is to have it done before. Yeah, yeah but, you know. That's what I'm shooting for. Or you continue my work for me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You make me your beneficiary. <laughs> Uh, you so get all of the 87 cents I have. <laughs> Ooh, that'll have a dollar. <laughs> yeah. Okay, anyways. <laughs> okay. So, he goes to the hospital in Middleborough, dies. <laughs> <laughs> Good. It's not funny. Well, just the way you said it is funny. No, I know, but I guess it, I guess we can laugh because he's a horrible person, so it's okay. <laughs> I guess we can laugh. He's a horrible person. <coughs> they do an autopsy on him. Come to find out, he deliberately took an overdose of a Lavil, an antidepressant, which he had been prescribed. So he didn't just like get this from anywhere. He was supposed to be taking it, but he took oh. a little. He took too much on purpose. Yeah. The hospital. Don't was, do that, by the way. Yeah, don't do that unless you're a serial killer. So, and you deserve to die. But if you're an average Joe, don't do that. Yeah. Um, the hospital, St. Luke's Hospital, received heavy criticism for its handling of the case. And four previous suicides that had taken place. Oh, not St. Luke's Hospital, sorry. Bridgewater State Hospital. <laughs> Getting all my ducks mixed up here. Yeah, I know. Gotta get them back in a row. Bridgewater State Hospital received criticism, blah, blah, blah. Four previous suicides that had taken place there since 1987, but the hospital's labor union uh, later ended up coming out with a statement saying that a... Um, High-ranking official without medical training, which they don't allude to who that is. That's all they said. But the staff said that this unnamed high-ranking official with no medical training had ordered them to lessen their surveillance on Harrison. If you remember earlier, I said that he had been left largely unmonitored. So, the chief clinical psychologist at the Bridgewater State Hospital was like, no, that's not true. And he said that he had personally made the decision not to place him on suicide watch. Which, (laughs) (laughs) which, he's like... He's like, don't put him on that. You know he's going to do it. (laughs) You know. Like, the staff is like... This guy, we're not going to say who it is, but this guy told us to do it. And he's like, no, that's not true. I did it. (laughs) (laughs) It was me. Like, he had an O, and he was like, actually, I did it. So, and he ended up, like, telling police that he, he basically said, like, Harrison didn't kill himself because he was depressed. He killed himself because he was trying to embarrass the hospital staff, and he fucked up, and he died. He's like, I'm not wasting staff putting him on suicide watch. And also, he killed himself because he was trying to throw a tantrum. Not because he was depressed. Also, I'm the one that didn't put him on suicide watch. It was me. I did it. I take credit for it. But I would do the same thing. I would be like, this this guy killed... This dude's going to kill himself. I'd be like, oh, well. Well, this dude killed little kids, old woman, guy just trying to have a night out at the bar with his friends like he's not a good guy and if the trash is gonna take itself out i'm sure as hell not gonna walk it you know Mm -hmm. but yeah that is the story of the boston giggler well that was pretty good 30 minutes i know well a couple minutes of interruptions but we did our best yeah so i guess it's my turn it's your turn. Uh, Chris. I'm sorry. All right. So, imagine this. It's the early morning hours. March 18th, 1990. Mm. 90s. Group of mysterious men enter the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. 
which I really wanted to go to and I completely forgot yeah. about. Yeah. They steal hundreds of millions of dollars worth of art and get away with it. I no, no evidence, no trace, no nothing. And I'm pretty sure Not it's... Malik? Nope, I'm pretty sure it's still unsolved. This, there was, um, like, from what I saw, like they said, I mean, I know I mentioned it, or I will mention it later, but, like, they think that, like, obviously back then, like, Boston was heavy on, like, Boston Mafia, Whitey Bulger, like, um, I guess, like, he has a statement directly to, to this where he was like, no, I would never waste my time on something like that, like, I did not do this. <laughs> But, um, anyways, so I guess there were two guards that were there. So one of them, so pretty much the way that their guard shift works is they would have one guy in the office watching the cameras or whatever with the walkie-talkie, and then you had another guy that would patrol with a flashlight and a walkie-talkie. So... Pretty much how they did it, and I'm going to start off with this before I explain, like, what they took. Um, because I thought it was pretty cool, was one of the guards who was down there went to one of the, um, like, fire alarm systems. Mm -hmm. And it said that there was, like, the smoke detectors were going off in multiple rooms, even though there was no... There was no smoke. Mm -hmm. Like, there was a, so he obviously just chalked it up to there was like some issue going on. Gotta like, change the batteries. Yeah, pretty much. There's a, a freaking, you know, fuse out, whatever. A glitch in this, a glitch in the matrix. We're in a simulation. <laughs> it's fine. Um,. So pretty much he didn't report that incident to the other guy in the control room. So he noticed that, thought it was just like a malfunction. NBD. Yeah, and was like, I'm not going to report that to the other guy. That doesn't seem suspicious at all. Which is so strange to me because when I'm at work, one tiny little thing happens and I want to tell the first person that walks by. <laughs> so... To what they stole, and no arrests have been made. None of the works have been recovered. There's no leads. It's unsolved. Um, the stolen works have been valued at hundreds of millions of dollars by the FBI and art dealers. Hundreds of millions of dollars. When so, this article was published, by the way, so who knows what that is in 2023 kind of money. But... The museum offers a $10 million reward for information leading to the art's recovery. Oh, my God. The largest bounty ever offered by a private institution. Should we, like, make this our life's mission to find out what happened to the missing art from the Isabella Gardner Museum? I guess. So, most Should of the... Should be the easiest $10 million <laughs> you've ever made. Oh, yeah, it only happened in the 1990s, and no one has solved it since. And there's no leads. Because you know what? No one's thought outside the box. They're in the building. No. Oh. Nobody solved it because nobody's called Nick Cage. Oh, my God. And we're going to be the first. Actually, like, uh, kind of thinking about it when I was reading some of the articles. Like, later, when I get to, like, towards the end of it. Like, and they're going through, like, who they think might, might have done it. Or, like, imagine, like, you're just, like, this crime ring, right? And you get painting. Like, you steal paintings or whatever. And they don't see, You can't move them right away. So, like, obviously you put them in storage or whatever. But, like, imagine just, like, walking into, like, some, some random old lady's house. And there's, like, a painting worth $500 million just, like, hanging up in her bathroom. And she has, like, no clue that that's what that is because, like, her nephew gave it to her yeah. as, like, a Christmas present. Her you know dirty what I little mean? sticky-handed nephew. Yeah. 
You know what I mean? She's got freaking. Oh, thank you. <laughs> she's got freaking uh, Picasso in her bedroom that she sleeps next to every day. She's like, I don't, I don't know what this was. My grandson gave it to me. I got this from Savers. <laughs> <laughs> um. So the stolen works were originally procured by art collector Isabella Stewart Gardner. And were intended for permanent display at the museum with the rest of her collection. Not so those like, guys. yeah, I know. So like, it kind of sucks because we were just in Boston. So like, I mean, we I know we didn't go there, but it would have been cool to like go there and see like these paintings, especially since this one, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, one of the paintings was called the Concert. It's one of only thirty-four known paintings by Johannes Vermeer and thought to be the most valuable unrecovered painting in the world. Well, then how would we see it if it's not there? Well, I, that's why I said hope, if they didn't steal them, we would have been able to see uh, them. Like but. if we had existed in 19, yeah. 1990? <laughs> no, like even when like we went to the Museum of Fine Arts and to even see like all those old paintings was super cool. So imagine if like those paintings were... Like, it, like if they just found that one, like that's one of 34 oh, yeah. known paintings. Like yeah. that's cool as fuck. If they, but we weren't allowed to see that because somebody stole it. So the FBI believes that the robbery was planned by a criminal organization, Ooh. of course, because who else, who else could you know pull off a scheme this coordinated in? It was an inside job. Dallas, nine eleven. George Bush did it. <coughs> yeah. Um. Unfortunately, the case has always lacked strong physical evidence. Of course. FBI has largely depended on interrogations, undercover informants, sting operations to collect information. Nothing. No solid physical evidence. There's nothing for them to actually go off of. All of their stings or interrogations or their undercover informants were pretty much based on or focused on the Boston Mafia which at this time was in the midst of an internal gang war. So, I mean, it, it could be that it was the Boston Mafia, but it also could be a case of they got a one-track mind and didn't pay attention to the right evidence because they were so focused on trying to That's true. get the Boston Mafia. So one of the theory is that gangster Bobby Donati organized the heist to negotiate for his Kappa regime's release from prison. Which, I mean, I'm not I'm not a historian on Mafia, but I've played a lot of Mafia games. Mm. I'm pretty sure I'm that's sure like that. a lieutenant. I'm pretty sure that's like a lieutenant or something. Like, a, like his officer. Any of our Boston Mafia listeners, please comment if you know. Don't shoot me, because I got the wrong information. What that means. But Bobby Donati was mur- murdered a year after the robbery. Hmm. So that, you know, that lead went nowhere. Um, another account suggests that the paintings were stolen by a gang in Dorchester. Although these suspects deny involvement despite the fact that a sting operation resulted in several prison sentences. All denied any knowledge or provide leads that or provided leads that provided fruitless despite the offer despite the offer to reward money or reduce or cancel prison sentences. Do you have your contacts in? No. Yeah. And no glasses. No. So you're stumbling over your words over there. I'm sorry. I don't you want to put my glasses glass. My Nana had magnifying glasses galore for this exact oh reason. My God. I don't need a magnifying glass. So pretty much like they thought it was this Dorchester gang. They went in, and, like, despite that they made, like, several arrests that ended in, like, lengthy prison sentences, they still had no leads towards this robbery. And even when offered, even the people that were in prison sentences, even if they were offered money or reduced, canceled prison sentences, whatever they could want, they still were like, we still don't know anything. Hmm. So, like, obviously. Do you think they actually don't know anything? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, the thieves were witnessed around 12.30 a.m. by several St. Patrick's Day re- 
I don't know how to say this word. Revelers? Yeah. Okay. Revelers leaving a party near the museum. The two men were disguised as police officers and parked in a hatchback on Palace Road, about 100 feet from the side entrance. The witness believed them to be policemen. But they were. No. So they disguised themselves as policemen to get into the museum. So that means that already leads you to believe that it must have been someone with some connections to get a policeman's uniform, to get to, to get something that looked, or, or, or at least an authentic one. But did you say that, so I'm, you said the first guard was stationed where? In the, in the office. He watches the cameras and he's in the office. And so then the my other question guy... is, how did he not, A, see them on the cameras, and B, if they somehow, like, hijacked the cameras, how did he not notice? I don't know. And the other guy was just walking around? <coughs> mm-hmm. I mean, he has a little bit more of an excuse, because he could have just not been at the right place at the right time. Mm. But, I don't know. I've also never been there, so I don't know if it's, like, if, it, like, someone was in the building, you would know. Or yeah. if it's like the MFA, where like someone could be two rooms away from you and you'd have no idea. Mm. So. Well, either way, in the distraction, like I told you all earlier, there was the alarms with the smoke, even though there was no smoke. So somehow, those two guys set off the alarm. And if you remember, they parked by the side entrance. Yes. So, I'm assuming, I couldn't find it anywhere. I'm assuming that when the guard heard the, or well, when the alarm was going off and he went to go check the system where it said mm-hmm. where, you know, where the glitch is, that these two quote unquote policemen, I'm assuming that they dressed as policemen to not raise any suspicion of them standing outside. The art museum, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because it has nothing to do with the crime. Because they pretty much enter the building. And what's funny is is they enter the building through the side entrance. And after the guard checks those things where it says, like, the smoke, the smoke alarms are going off, he walks back to said side entrance and opens the door and just, like, like looks around. Pretty much just, like, takes a breather. And, like... Obviously, the two guys that were standing there aren't there anymore because they're in the building. Do you know mm. what I mean? So, um, I didn't, I forgot to put this in my paper, but pretty much what they do is they capture and subdue the guards. They tie them up, handcuff them, and I think it said there was like two or four of them. I know there was like two in the police officer uniform. But I don't remember if two if two more came. So I'm just gonna stick with the two that were in the police officer's uniform. But as they were prepared Did to they leave, they have like their faces covered or anything. Um, they had, there were two sketches that I saw, mm. and it was just like, it was like two generic, two yeah, two generic looking males in thick glasses with like stereotypical like '90s like handlebar mustaches. Which very well could have been fake. Yeah, so, um, and the thieves were obviously very careful and delicate with what they did with the paintings because they obviously knew that they were, how much they were worth. Mm-hmm. And they were very professional, like, you know, they went in and out. The whole robbery lasted 81 minutes. That's, I mean, I'm not a robber, but I'm pretty sure that's a good amount of time to make away with hundreds of millions of dollars worth of paintings. Uh, Completely unnoticed. Yeah, completely unnoticed and never got caught. And so they were very professional. And as they were leaving, the thieves checked the guards again, asked if they were comfortable. You know, the officers, I mean, I don't know what they said. They didn't really say what they said, but I'm assuming the officers didn't have nice things to say. Yeah. Um, They moved them down to the basement and the thieves moved back upstairs to the security director's office where they took the video cassettes that contained evidence of their entrance from the closed circuit cameras as well from the data printouts from the motion detecting equipment around the paintings. Oh, they thought of So everything. they knew. So like I said, these, the, these guys must have been 
they must have been an organization well known enough to have the strings attached to get the police uniforms to know what they were doing they must have like you said an inside job they must have known that in the security office they would have been the cassette tapes and the data for the um <clears throat> motion detecting equipment because well, how not, else would they know that? Well, not only would they have to know that, they would also have to know where to locate it in that specific, like, building and yeah. or system. Layout. Because otherwise, they wouldn't be able to do it quickly. They'd be sitting there all night trying to figure out how to do it. Mm. And I find it hard to believe there wasn't, like... I don't... I mean, what did you say they took? Printouts? Was the second thing the cassette tapes and yeah the um, cassette tapes as well as closed circuit security camera as well as the data printouts from the motion detecting equipment so that's what the printouts from the motion detecting equipment that's what you're thinking of yeah but I wonder like if it was like easy for them to access that or if like they needed to have like they must some have. sort of clearance they, to get in but then they, they must also have. They also subdued the security guards. Yeah, and they already had them in the basement because they went back upstairs to the security's office. Yeah, so if they needed and clearance, they could have just taken it off of them. That's true, but then they also need to know how to do that because, once again, it's 1990. And no, like I know. Cassette tapes are cassette tapes. You can just take those out, but I don't right. know what motion detecting equipment was like in the but 90s. But they also would have had to know <coughs> where the security office was. Hmm. So... Um, the thieves began to move, remove the artwork from the museum. The side entrance doors were opened at 2.40 a.m. And again for the last time at 2.45 a.m. The robbery lasted, like I said, for 81 minutes. And that was it. And that's all they got? That's all she wrote? For the robbery? Uh, in 1994, museum director Ann Hawley received an anonymous letter from someone who claimed to be who claimed to be attempting to negotiate a return of the artwork the letter explained that they were a third party negotiator who did not know the identity of the thieves they explained that the artwork was stolen to reduce a print prison sentence but as the opportunity has passed there was no longer a motive to keep the artwork and they wanted to negotiate a return now if you remember from my first page, uh, Bobby Donati, one of the theories against the gangster, Bobby Donati, said that he organized the whole heist to negotiate for his Kappa regime's release from prison. Hmm. And then Donati died a year later after the robbery. Right. So he, maybe he just never got the chance. Yeah, maybe that ended with him right then and there. So, they explained that the artwork was stolen to, oh yeah, to reduce a printed sentence. But the opportunity has passed. There was no longer a motive to keep the artwork and they wanted to negotiate a return. The writer explained that the artwork was being held in a non-common law country under climate-controlled conditions. They wanted immunity for themselves and all others involved and 2.6 million for return of the artwork are you kidding you stole it to begin with exactly well it's all it's like ransom you know uh that 2.6 million would be sent to an offshore bank account at the same time as the art was handed over if the museum was interested in negotiated they would they should co they should print a coded message in the boston globe to establish credence. The writer conveyed information only known by the museum and the FBI at the time. So this letter that they got saying, hey, you know, I might know the guys that have the artwork and they might want to negotiate for some money and they want immunity too. And like the information that they explained were the... is. The only other people that knew the information that they explained in this letter were the FBI and the museum. It was obviously pretty legit that these guys were. The museum director felt that this was a strong lead. She contacted the FBI, who then contacted the Globe, and the coded message was printed on May 1st, 1994, edition of the Boston Globe. 
Howley received a second letter a few days later in which the writer acknowledged the museum was interested in negotiating, but that they had become fearful of what they perceived was a massive investigation by federal and state authorities to determine their identity. Yeah, no shit. The writer explained that they needed time to evaluate their options, but Howley never heard from the writer again. I kind of feel like it's bullshit. And that's where, it's, that's where it left off. I kind of feel like they were bullshitting her, but at the same time, she got the letter four years after it all happened. So, like, I feel like the the hype died down at that point of people that, like, would, like, want to impersonate them or something. Well, Buddy gets out in prison, or he's, he's up for release in four years and you need money. And you steal artwork. Four years... Of keeping it, you know, under wraps, we're probably there's probably enough time for the heat on that to die down enough for you to try to sell it or negotiate it for that person's release. Do you know what I mean? Because you can't do it right away because mm. you know you just you just did it. So for, yeah, it's just kind of fishy to me that they were like, <clears throat> okay, yeah, we'll negotiate with you, and they were like, no, <laughs> never mind. Like, they literally just said they would give you every single thing you asked for, and immediately he's like, well, I actually, think, never mind. I think it's because that they wanted to negotiate with the museum directly, and since that she went to the FBI first, or included the FBI, I guess. I don't know. Made, made them have a big stink about it. I don't know. But, <coughs> yep, they've never been found. Look at how big that sound wave is. Sorry. <laughs> they've never been found. No leads, no nothing. Mm, that's crazy. So someone somewhere, you know, check your grandmother's closet, her attic. You and might have <clears throat> remembrance paintings. Yeah, you might have that painting, the concert. That's like one of thirty-four paintings what's ever. What's the guy's known name? Like Johans. Johan Vermeer. Something like that. You know the tap. And a if you do, dollars. and if you do, let us know so we can take a cut of the ten million dollar reward money. Because ten million dollar reward money, it's probably more now. Because we helped. Who knows you, how basically. much that painting is worth? We we told you about it, so we're a second party. We need to collect some of the profit. Yeah, we do. All right, well, I think we can just do our conclusion just right now, wrapped up, or not conclusion, but outro. I don't know why I said conclusion. Like, it's a freaking essay. Um, <clears throat> yeah, you're right. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks. This was This was fun. It's always a good time. Yeah, I had fun with Kenneth Francis Harrison. And I had fun with the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum Heist. And uh, it was fun that we got to do Boston. And we had fun in Boston. Yeah, when we went, we did. So. It'd be cool to try to see if we could visit some of these places, like, in real life. Yeah, I know. We'll have to start compiling a list. Yeah, and go visit. All right, well, we'll see you next week. Yeah. We'll have to decide what we're doing. Because we don't know yet, unlike last time. No, but it'll be a surprise. It'll be a surprise. And um, we'll, we'll make it good for you, because we're starting to get the hang of it. Hope, yeah. You I say hopefully? It. Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully by next week we're better. Yeah. All right. Well. See you in the next one. See you in the next one. Stay spooky. <laughs>